Tonight's show is brought to you by the Fraternal Order of Disincarnate Spirits, Spookums, and Fae, Local Chapter, Number 73, Bendetti Optics, and you, our listeners. Everyone's all big and bad, and yeah, I'll take an off-road diesel sign until freaking Satan comes to make you pay for it, right? is up all of you wayward souls and hey that takes on a little bit of a deeper meaning tonight doesn't it wayward souls and welcome back to the wayward stories podcast wayward stories is the podcast where we tell stories of adventures in our wanderings and our wanderings tonight tonight it is a special spooky season episode dropping on friday night for your listening pleasure for your spooky holiday weekend, whether you enjoy Halloween, whether you enjoy Samhain, no matter how you celebrate the creepy season, over this weekend, at the time when the veil between our two worlds is the thinnest and can possibly be parted, and certain things may leak over into our paradigm. I hope that you enjoy it. Tonight, we are going to talk about many, many things that have happened to me personally, and I will stand here and attest to right now. I will say it right now. If I tell the story tonight, I swear to you on all that is good and holy and whatever you want me to swear on that what I speak to you is an experience I had myself and I authenticate it as a true story. No matter what you wish to think about me if when this is all over with, if you think I'm crazy or weird or whatever, that's fine. You do you. I don't really care. But I promise you the stories I'm going to tell you tonight really happened, and I can't wait to get into them because some of them, as we progress throughout the evening to the end of the show, they're going to get downright. Some of them will make my hair stand on end, what little I have left up here, all over again. Just upon the retelling, y'all, some of them, some of them are pretty creepy. But anyway, we're going to just do away with the pleasantries of housekeeping tonight. There's nothing to talk about. I haven't yet gone to the Ozarks Home and Rec show as I record this. However, it was last weekend as you listened to it, so I have nothing to report. We will just hope that it went really, really awesome, as I'm sure it will. But next episode... Next time around, I will probably have a report on how the Rex show went. Before tonight, there's not much more to talk about other than the stories we have. I am, as you can see, in the same studio with the same candles doing the same thing as I did last episode. Because I'm recording it literally concurrently. I took a break, took a swig of chocolate milk, and sat back down for the rest of tonight's marathon. So let's get into... Tonight's stories, well, let's get into the overview, first of all, of what we're going to talk about. For tonight's show, we are going to touch on again, much as we did in the last episode, our lead up to our spooky season finale this weekend, some of the things I did while I was working on the film or the TV show on the fringe. And these, (laughs) most of them are actually at the end of the episode because they're the ones where some of the creepiest stuff happened. We actually did run into some things we couldn't explain. Sometimes, apparently, if you go out looking for something long enough, 
And enough times, you might just find something. Or, gosh, one of these cases, maybe it finds you. But we're going to tell some stories, and all of them are travel. All of them are things you can go do for yourself and go check out for yourself. They're all places you can go yourself for a ghost trip, for a legend trip, if you wish. Um, And they are... Ugh, some of them are... Some of them are spine tingling. I can't wait. I can't wait. We're going to get into it. Well, right here. First off, let's talk about this. This could probably have been called housekeeping, but it's not housekeeping. Um, But anyway, it fits in tonight. This isn't about being out there in the woods. It's not about being out there on an adventure, but it fits right in and it's a short story. So I'm going to tell it to you and get you in the mood. Okay. I work at a building in downtown Fort Smith now. It is 100 years old next year. I'm not going to say the company name or anything, but the building itself was built 100 years ago um, in 1923. Well, it is 2022. Next year, it'll be a 100-year-old building. Fascinating history in this building. Like, I mean, it's, it's nothing like crazy. It wasn't like an insane asylum. But when I say fascinating history, I mean the artifacts. Like, the huge, like, 12 by 12 posts that support the superstructure of the building, they run through the whole building. And when you get up onto the top floor, there's names from 1929, you know, 1943. There's, there's newspaper articles that are, like, somehow like a weird lacquer or laminate pasted to those posts that are from the 30s and the 40s. There's so much, and we I call it human residue. There's human residue everywhere in that building, and the history of it's fascinating. Well, for the last several months that I have actually worked there, they've been telling me about Fred. Fred is the resident ghost, apparently, as all old buildings have, right? All old buildings have a resident ghost. Well, Fred is ours. No one knows, you know, Fred's name just comes from being everything that nobody knows what it is, is Fred. If there's something there, it probably has an actual name and it probably hates the name Fred, especially at this point. But anyway, I've been told stories about Frederick and that's just, it's apparently just like a reality that they live with there. And me being the person that is interested in these kinds of things, I was like, I want to meet Fred. I want to know about Fred. So every time I have to go upstairs and it can be spooky upstairs. Lighting is terrible. It's just rows and rows and rows and rows and rows, like forevermore of boxes and boxes and boxes of files. Like it's just file storage, right? And they're tall shelves. It's dark everywhere. Like there's all these black corners and things. It's hard to see up in our attic, even in broad daylight, because there are windows. But anyway, there's super dark spots everywhere. But every time I go up there to have to get a file, I'm just like, hey, Fred, I'm just up here. Don't mess with me, buddy. Like, don't hire me. I'm just here chilling. How you doing today? You know, like just kind of, I just always kind of talk to him. He ain't talking back, but I always kind of just talk to him or her, whatever it is. Um, But here last week, I go through. And I am down, or I'm up there, and I'm down on the floor, and I got a box out, and I'm digging through it, and I'm trying to find the proper files to go deliver. And I get down to the last file, and I have it in hand. I'm putting the box back on the shelf, and I hear behind me, as plain as freaking day, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Sound like boot heels. Walk down the aisle, probably two back from me or three, is what it sounded like. And I mean, there was seven or eight of them and it walked from, I was facing this way. So it walked from my right to my left, like it was going to go out. Right. And I remember I stopped and I went there. I know there's no one up here with me. 
I'm the only person pulling files. Everyone else is downstairs in the office. But then I thought, skeptical Justin, you know, the woo-woo skeptic, as I talked about last time. I was like, nah, maybe Robert's up here. Because maybe he came up. And I knew as soon as I thought that, I was like, no, the heck he didn't. Because you didn't hear the door at the bottom of the stairs slam when he came up behind you. So that means he probably didn't come up behind you because that door slams and there's nothing you can do about it. It just makes a super loud creaking noise if you just open it, even if you were to shut it quietly. That's like I never heard anything. And so I was literally had everything I needed as this happened. So I just took off on a dead walk. I went looking and I went up to the main aisle and came down. It was all going towards the front exit or the front exit, the door downstairs anyway. And I walked straight over it. Of course, there's nothing there. Of course, there's nothing there. But still, trying to give benefit of the skeptical doubt, I had a hauled straight downstairs, went into the office, and found everybody sitting around, actually focused on something intently. I can't remember what they were trying to do, but literally everyone I work with, which is a small handful of people, it's not a very heavily employed company here, right? Like, there's just like seven or eight of us there at the office at any given time. Everyone was accounted for in the office and engaged in something. And I just walked in the door and I saw that and I was like, I just met Fred. I know I did. But I said to them, I was like, yo, who was just upstairs with me? And they all turned and looked at me with this odd look on their face like, what? And then my boss goes, oh, you must have met Fred. Yeah, I met Fred. I met Fred. And so that excited me. So I went back upstairs and I opened the door and I didn't have time to mess around. I had work to go do, but I just ran back upstairs and I opened the door. I was like, Hey Fred, thanks for saying hi, buddy. I'll talk to you again next time. And I shut the door and went back down, but no joke y'all. It tripped me out. I've had experiences that we're going to talk about tonight, but they were 13 years ago. Nothing has happened since then until last week. And I'm super stoked about it super stoked about it, but I kid you not. And, and given, you know, I I gave that the best description I could, but I mean, I was about to take my steps. I was literally at the tail end. I had my files and was sliding the box back into place. And I was about to head to the door. And then I hear those steps and I just stopped and listened as they walked by until they disappeared. And then I went dead away to go find them. No one was there, went straight downstairs and see, that's the other thing. Had it been someone upstairs with me, because of the nature of the fact that I was on my way out anyway, they would have had to run out and down the stairs to get away from me. Like if it were one of my coworkers trying to pull a prank on me and there's no way you don't hear them running down the stairs. You you see, you follow what I'm saying. I was up there alone. There was no one there with me. And I went downstairs. Everyone was present and accounted for within 30 or 45 seconds of me hearing it. So I met Fred, something for real, real happened. And I am super excited about it. So let's move on into the actual Wayward Stories kind of branded content. Last week, we were very much on brand. We were traveling. We were going out and exploring and checking out all the things where these great legends um, happened at one point, but didn't necessarily, they weren't reproducible for us, the On the Fringe crew. But this week, we're going to talk about some things that were, and a few other things, just a few other little personal ones. And, And a lot of those are actually going to populate, actually, all of these in the first half of the episode are going to be populated by personal stories of mine. And then we'll get into the, on the friend stuff on the other side, but all of them are things in places that you could go for yourself to possibly run into. I mean, it's not like first on the list here is the ghost deer. 
you're not necessarily going to go look for this ghost deer because where do you go look for a ghost deer, right? But it's down in the Washita Mountains of Southeast Oklahoma where I grew up hunting and whatnot. Um, but you can go down there. You can go explore it. And that's that's probably what these first these first couple of stories tonight, they probably, this is what they really speak to, is how creepy the Washita's can be. You know, there really is almost a, a, a something that hangs in the air when you get down in deep southeast Oklahoma. And funnily enough, as I think about it, I've never noticed that in the Arkansas Washita's. We spent, you know, I mean, we were just over there, what's how many episodes ago at the Bellstar Cave and doing the pre-planning episode and all that? The Arkansas side feels a little bit different. And, you know, there's actually could be some reasons for that, but that's not for tonight to speculate. Um, Not for us to speculate on tonight. But the Watchtowers of Southeast Oklahoma are, they have a certain, it's almost like they have a certain lens over them. They just, it looks different. It feels different. That's the way to put it. It feels different. They have a whole different feel. And it's a feel that I would liken to a mysteriousness. You know, kind of almost a mystical feel like there's something about it that feels different. Maybe, maybe, you know, some of these sites, actually, one of them that I am going to talk about tonight, next step or the next story after this one, actually, is one of the sacred places. Remember when I talked about that Christmas last year, around the Christmas time? It wasn't a Christmas episode, but it dropped like right on that week of Christmas. This is one of those sacred places there. So maybe that has something. Maybe that plays. You know what I talked about in that sacred places episode. Any of you guys that are just coming on board, if you're coming on board after being at the rec show last weekend, go back and listen to the sacred spaces episode. It's around Christmas time of last year, 2021. By far, fan favorite. I've heard more about it, probably. My search and rescue episodes get a lot of them, but that one, that one struck a chord with a lot of people. That was a good episode for that purpose. A lot of this tonight, the Washita's of Southeast Oklahoma, they have this kind of vibe. They have that kind of vibe. And what did I say in that episode? I said, you get into these certain places and they're just like sacred. I couldn't think of a different word. I came up with, they just seem like they have almost a, a mystique to them. They're, they're almost sacred places. They almost feel like they have a sentience. It's almost like they have a memory. It's almost like they're their own entity in a sense. And I promise you guys, if you are new listeners coming in, it's not all woo-woo stuff. It's just Halloween. And I love Halloween. And I blend my love for Halloween and the spookum stuff into this podcast every year about this time. But the Washita's themselves, these first couple of stories, really, actually all of them, are kind of more of an indicator than anything of just the fact that it's weird down there. It's kind of creepy. Any of you guys, I don't know if any of you guys watch Gravity Falls on Disney Channel or Disney Plus. It's a kid's cartoon, but I love it. I love it so hard. And the whole premise is there's this little place up in the Northwest in um, Oregon called Gravity Falls, a fictional place, of course. But it is like the epicenter of the weird. It has like a electromagnet that just draws in everything weird and it's just highly concentrated there. There's a certain amount of that in the mountains of Southeast Oklahoma, a certain amount of that feel, the Washita's way back in there. Um, and that's what a lot of this speaks to, but let's tell some of those stories. So back in the day I hunted, I didn't really hunt. I want to be clear on that. I'm not afraid of people making fun of me. I never wanted to kill an animal. I'm way too soft hearted when it comes to animals. Like I just am what I am. Like I know me, 
I'm happy with me. You want to make fun of me? You want, I don't care. I'm old now. I got that superpower you get when you turn 40 where you don't care what anyone thinks about like what you choose in life, what you like and don't like. I never wanted to kill a deer. I have no interest whatsoever in killing an animal because I don't need to. If I had to to live, I probably would. You know, I ain't against it. I'm not like ethically opposed to it by any means. It just ain't my thing. You follow? Anyway, but I love to hunt. Cause that's what got me into the woods and one of my friends and his father got me into hunting and we would go hunting. Well, then we got old enough that we could hunt on our own. And what I just loved about it was being out there in nature, just setting up against a tree with your butt on the ground. And funnily enough, as I look back on it now, I was like, man, I was grounding in a lot of ways, which is kind of a big thing these days, people getting into grounding and just kind of whatever. But there is something about connecting to nature like that, that really does get you in touch. It just feels like with like our, our, our life support system. Now this earth is so important and it's our origin in so many ways, no matter how you look at what originated us, this earth is like, it's the medium in which it happened and it has to be here to sustain us. And there's a lot of value to that, but we were hunting and I would, I would love to go out. I didn't like to actually hunt, but I went and I pretended to like to hunt because back then I did care what my peers thought about me and peer pressure sucked. And I hated being made fun of because that happened on the daily. I was a battered. I was a dire of a wimpy kid, probably somewhere along those lines when I was a kid. Um, but we would go and we would, I would take my bow. I love to shoot my bow. I love to target shoot. You know, I love shooting my bow, but I never had an, any intention of killing anything with it. Um, but we went out there and we went down in the Washita's and the Shawnee ridges. God, you know, it just dawned on me. Most of these stories happen in all of them actually happen in the Shawnee ridges. These first four and crap one in the second half of the episode. It is weird down there. It's weird down there. It's gravity falls, whatever. Um, we're up and we got tree stands set up, not climbing stands, but the kind you climb the ladder up into, you know, you put them together, you go up the stand so we had climbing stands out and it was one day and it was getting close to dark and I had my climbing stand set up somewhere along Shawnee Creek or some Creek. I think it was Shawnee Creek or a branch of it down in the Shawnee ridges, deep, deep, deep in the Washita's. And I'm sitting there and I hear something walking up on me. So I'm like, Ooh, a deer, you know? So you start looking cause you want to at least see it, right? Like I'm not trying to kill it, but I want to see it. And it's coming up behind me on my right. And I'm kind of set up per- perpendicular to the Creek. And I look back over my shoulder and you know, I don't see anything, but I hear it. And I'm like, okay, well, it's probably a squirrel then. Because sometimes squirrels, they do this hoppy hop thing. And it sounds like a deer walking. And then it keeps walking, but it stays way too consistent to sound like a squirrel. Because squirrels do a little bit of skittering in there. And I look back and I keep, and I, I hear it. I hear it like it's right up underneath me. And I'm looking all around at the ground, everywhere around me. And trying to look down around the side of the tree stand. And I'm like, it's nowhere. There's nothing there, but I hear it. I don't see anything either. There is no leaves rustling. You know, it's thick forest floor. It's under um, plantation pines down there or loblolly pines. One of the two. I think it's loblolly. You got all these pine trees in this thick layer of pine needles, but also you get the hardwoods that are scattered through these pine plantations. You've got just regular crunchy leaves everywhere. And it's like a thick layer of detritus on these forest floors, you know, and I'm looking down at it. There's plenty of things that need to be moving around. If something was walking beneath me and I'm looking right down at the sound to the point when it finally emerges from underneath me and comes into my actual more easily viewable field of view, I'm literally looking at what exactly sounds like the sound is coming from where I hear it. I finally have my eyes directly on it. I don't know. That's hard to explain, but 
if that makes sense to you, I finally, for the first time in the whole experience, felt I was looking at where the sound was coming from. There was no nothing, no movement in the in the pine needles, in the leaves, nothing. But I still hear crunching of leaves. I still hear the thud thud, you know, the the muffled thuds. And it walked smooth out of sight. I'm, I'm, I say out of sight, out of earshot. It walks smooth out of earshot. Again, I swear to you, this occurred to me. And it tripped me out so hard, I thought I was going to kill myself coming down that tree stand. But at first, I had to convince myself to even come down the tree stand, mind you. And what do I find out once I do make it down the stand and I make my way over towards my buddy as it was getting darker? And he's coming down that stand and he's walking over towards me and he goes, yo, I just saw a ghost deer. I was like, you saw a ghost deer? He's like, well, I heard it. And anyway, he had the same experience I did. True story. That really happened to us. And I still, to this day, fascinates me. What the hell could that have been? No idea. No idea. Um, But let's move on. Now, again, Shawnee Ridges. Okay. Story coming up now. Same freaking place, but much deeper into the ridges, way down towards the end of this old road, McMurtry Holler Road. But we go down, and we were riding four-wheelers, and I think, pretty positive, this is one of the ones I talked about in the Sacred Places episode. There is a possibility, because I remember I had like three lined up, and I only told two of the stories because I ran up against a time constraint or something like that. It's been almost a year ago now. This one may have been the one that was left out, but if not, either way, we're telling it again. So I had an instance down in the Shawnee Ridges one time of what is known as missing time. And this is me as a young guy. You know, I'm, I think I'd have been 17 or 18. I don't even know that I was out of high school yet at this point, but I had my own four wheeler and we had a lot of fun on those four wheelers and we had rode all the way down to Hawk Creek and I believe we were swimming down there and we came back and, and one of the two of us, I believe it was my friend, I won't say his name, had found a different way or someone had told him. See, we didn't have phones back then, y'all. This isn't our thing. This was before cell phones the way we have cell phones now. They did exist in like 97 and 98, but nobody had them. Hell, we may have still had just bag phones back then that nobody had except for car salesmen and lawyers. Um, So there was like no GPS. You can just pull your phone out and Google map it or look at the GPS topo or whatever. But someone may have told us, like, you go up this way and you go down through the ridges and you'll come out over on McMurtry Holler Road and whatever. Well, we take this way coming back, I believe, from swimming down in Hawk Creek somewhere or Black Fork in that area. And we come back and we go up this hill. And I remember we go off into the woods here. It's a whole new trail to us, even though we had explored these ridges so, so thoroughly for so many years. I mean, ever since, since I was 15, because my friend was a year ahead of me. We started when he was 16, when I was 15, and we're now on probably 17, 18, 19. We, we did it all of our high school years and even past our high school years. We explored down in that area. It was just a great place. National Forest. Anyone can camp there. Awesome place. Um, And we're down there, and we go up. We start riding, and it was so cool because it was like, we never seen this trail. This is fun. This is a whole new trail to know. But we also did have a map. We didn't have anything, right? We could have got lost as heck, right? But whatever. So we're rolling through there on the four wheelers and we reached a place where we rolled down into this kind of valley in between two distinct ridges and the forest floor there was magical. I don't know how else to put it. We got right into the middle of that valley and we parked and 
stopped and let our four-wheelers cool off, right? You had to do that with old two-stroke four-wheelers. You had to stop every so often and let them cool off so you didn't crack the head on them. And I'm looking around, and it's like, there, it's tall canopy. It's old-growth trees with tall canopies. So the forest floor is clear. Like, there's not tons of brush and underbrush. Like, it, it, it felt like it was in a movie. It was out of a different world. You're looking through, and you can just see the floor. And there's even some grass on the forest floor. And it was literally like something out of a fictional movie. It felt like you were in Middle Earth. There was something about it. It was a really, really special place. And I felt like we were there forever. And the four-wheeler riding through the valley had taken forever to get there. And then we were going out the other side. And I remember when we left that valley, number one, how taken I was by how gorgeous it was there and how it felt. Again, it was like a sacred place. And even at that age, this is when I started noticing places like this. Like this is, this is, this is different. This feels like it has a certain magic to it. It feels again, ancient. It feels like there's a memory here of something. And it was just absolutely very impressive to me. It left a big impression on me. Well, we go out and we fight our way out. Like the road got rougher and rougher and rougher. And we were back there forever. It felt like we were on that road for hours. I mean, literally felt like I would have guessed, had you asked me, I would have guessed we'd been on that road three to four hours. Because I remember telling my friend, I was like, we got to get out of here eventually or it's going to get dark on us and we don't actually know where we are we have a general idea of what direction we're traveling because we can see you know from the shadows where the sun is to the west and we're traveling the way we should be generally northwest and we're on trails that were roads at some point they aren't necessarily today but where the hell are we how long have we been driving on this road How long have we been down in here? It's going to get dark and we're not back to camp. We don't have anywhere to camp. We don't have anything to eat. The point is it was becoming a growing concern. When are we going to get out of here? When does this road get back onto the other road? When do we hit McMurtry Holler again? And finally, we did. And we hit McMurtry Holler. And we get up onto the road and we get back down. And from that point, it wasn't but a very short shot. And we got back to our camp where our vehicles were. And we opened. I was like, what freaking time is it? Because the sun didn't look right. Right? The sun should have been on the horizon by how long we'd been out there and what time we left from where we left from. Again, no cell phones. We couldn't check this as we drove along. And neither one of us had a watch on. Like, that stuff cost money. We were poor boys back then. We didn't have watches. But like we left from this one place and it was like, I don't remember exact time, but it was like one o'clock, whatever. And then it felt like we drove through that valley and that place that felt like a sacred space for five or six, like four or five hours. I'd say three to four, three to four. So we left at one. I'd say I was thinking we're getting there at five-ish. Maybe it's getting close to six. And we come out of that valley finally up onto the road, the main dirt road. And we start taking it back to camp where we've only got a five or six minute drive to get back to where our trucks are. And we kind of get where the the mountains open up a little bit and the sun's still up in the sky pretty high. And I'm like, it should be down on the horizon. We've been back here forever. And we get down to our vehicles. Open, I think it was his truck was the newer of the two and actually had a clock in it. And we look at the clock and it was like, God, what was it? It was like 2.30 or something. And I was like, yo. 
Did we not just spend like three and a half or four hours? We left at one o'clock. It should be five or six o'clock. And I remember my friend turning and looking at me and he just kind of shook his head and he said, this makes no sense whatsoever. And that was the end of it. I never talked about it again because I mean, it never came up again. I don't know. But somewhere down in that valley, we spent three or four hours somehow driving around in one of the most gorgeous places I've ever seen. It almost felt like a different world. And then suddenly... We're back at camp. We finally find the road we're looking for. Get back to camp. And we'd only spent an hour and a half driving through there instead of the three or four that it felt like it was. It made no sense whatsoever. But again, that is the Shawnee Ridges. And it's kind of creepy down there. There are many ways you could probably explain that, how time can take on different kind of facets in your mind psychologically, but it happened to both of us. Both of us were intrigued by how the hell did we only spend an hour and 15 or 20 minutes driving in there for how long we've been back in there driving around is an oddity. It was an oddity to be sure. Um, well, let's tell one more story before we go to the break. And this one's also an interesting story. And this also occurs down there in the Shawnee Ridges. I'm starting to notice a trend here. Okay. We had a camp back there on McMurtry Holler Road. And it was a great, great, great camp. When we started going down there, it was because, well, you don't need to know all the backstory. But let's just put it this way. It was a road that had fallen into a great deal of disuse. And all the old hunting camps that used to be back in there in the National Forest had kind of been abandoned. You kind of got the feeling that the groups of men that used to hunt it, you know, probably in the 70s or 80s, based on the the artifacts we would find, the style of beer cans with the beaver tail tops and the things in these old hunting camps we would find, that it had been there for a while and that many people had camped there in like seasonal camps, which is a common thing down here in these mountains. But that at some point, probably the elders that the patriarchs maybe died off and maybe they started going. There's another place where there's a lot of seasonal camps in wholesome Valley. Maybe everyone just kind of migrated or the people that, that really loved this particular region of the mountains had kind of whatever had changed and they hadn't been back in many, many years. And we established this little camp that was so awesome, backed right up to a tiny little Creek that never, ever, ever flowed until there was like big storms. I talked about that recently in one episode. I can't remember, but it's the one where the water was coming into our tents and the water was up nearly over the road and we had to bail out in the middle of the night. That was that Creek. Only time I can ever remember it actually running the rest of every time ever, it was just a big pool of water, but it bottlenecked and there was never a pour over. It just kind of, the bed was dry for the rest of the way. That's the nature of the, the, most of the creeks down in the Washita mountains, they are runoff creeks. They don't come from super big spring, spring fed and just stay running all year round. They're mostly mountain runoff creeks and it was real pretty green water. But anyway, this story revolves around that little body of water. We would run around back in the day on the old back roads, the old county roads, the dirt roads, and, and we would have a good time as teenagers would do. I feel like the statute of limitations has passed, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you this story. We used to do things that were not necessarily completely legal. You know, there may have been alcohol involved. Um, 
And one night we were driving around on the way back in the middle of the nowhere, county roads, middle of nowhere. And we came up on one of those old gas stations, those old, old gas stations, you know, that don't, they didn't have pumps that would, well, back in the day, very few pumps took credit cards, but like they had like the old school pumps. They didn't, it, it was just a super, super old, probably 1970s ish kind of gas station in the middle of nowhere. But they had these big stand-up metal signs, like sheet metal type of signs, you know, that set out by the road. Back in the day, they would say, like, Marlboro cigarettes, $5.50, whatever. And they're like those, they have it, they have to have a name. But they'd stand about chest high. They had legs at the bottom. They were on a metal frame, and they were just kind of like a little sheet metal in the middle that was, had the, you know, the advertisement on it or whatever. Well... They used to have these that set out everywhere at the stores where they would sell off-road diesel. For any of you that don't know what that is, it is just a different grade, a different step in the refinement process for creating diesel fuel, and it's not set for highway use, but you can use it in farm equipment. Well, back in the woods where there's a lot of farmers back in the country, you don't want to buy the most expensive diesel. You buy the cheapest diesel that you can get, which is diesel, you know, farm grade diesel, off-road diesel. So they had a sign set out at the road, just said off-road diesel, indicating, hey, you can get your off-road diesel here. Well, as it goes, when you're a somewhat troublemaking teenager, somebody might have decided they wanted that off-road diesel sign. I will say in my defense, I was not the person that wanted it. I was always the person that was like, we're going to go to jail. I did get made fun of a lot for being the granny, you know, like the the mother hen running around. We're going to, we can't do that. We can't do that. Which I will say in my favor, I think I kept us from dying multiple times. But you know what? No one remembers that. People only remember the sissies. Heroes die and are forgotten about. But anyway, somebody may have wanted that sign. And somebody may have pulled over and taken that sign. And we might have driven that sign back to our camp, our almost basically at this point permanent camp down in McMurtry Holler. And we got down there and we're sitting around the campfire and we had our off-road diesel sign we we're so proud of or whatever. And then, you know, sobriety started to set in. As you got later into the evening, sobriety started to set in. And then you know, calmer minds, cooler minds started to prevail. And the idea was was conjured up that, yo, if someone sees this here, like a game ranger, we'll probably get in trouble for this. There's a high plausibility this is not a good thing to do. So what we did was we decided, quit goat thinking. I said sobriety had started to set in, not that it had completely taken over. We decided to throw it in the little creek behind the camp, eh, hoping that it would sink to the bottom, which I think all of us probably should have known that there was no way that creek was deep enough. So we throw it in. And fortunately enough, I guess at least, it did fall on its side, so it was a little bit less conspicuous. But yes, the the it just stuck out of the water. The feet were sticking out of the water. Part of the sign was still sticking out of the water. It was laid over sideways. The creek was probably no deeper than a foot and a half. You know what I mean? There's nowhere for it to go, right? Sign's just there. We're like, well, crap. And at this point, no one's about to wait out there in this water. We don't know if it does get deeper somewhere between here and there. We don't know. You don't know any of these things, right? And there's still the sobriety issue. So we decided, okay, we're just going to risk it. I'm too tired and not feeling so hot. We all just need to go to sleep. So we decided to go to sleep. And we go up, and I had this little crappy old camper I bought from somebody for like $500. And we got up there. We got in our bunks, and we're laying there. 
and everyone's getting ready to start going to sleep. And I swear to you, again, if I'm lying, I'm dying. We hadn't been in those bunks for two or three minutes because we were all still awake. Given that we'd been drinking and partying all night and having a good time, we were somehow all still awake. So it was like immediately after bedding down, you hear that sign banging around like crazy. You can hear the metal. You know how sheet metal sounds. If you you ever heard somebody messing with a saw and it makes that weird flippy floppy sound or sheet metal, like real thin sheet metal, how it makes that sound. That's what this sign was made of. And that's what we heard. And it was loud. There was a commotion and a ruckus happening down in that creek with that sign. And we all freaked the hell out. Okay. But no one was about to go out there and see because we were a bunch of sissy weasels at that point, right? Everyone's all big and bad. And yeah, I'll take an off-road diesel sign until freaking Satan comes to make you pay for it, right? So we're just like freaking out and don't know what to do. I mean, and I'm, I remember the conversations like in whispers like, do you think it's a game ranger? Do you think they're dragging it out of the water and they're about to come up here and knock? Hey, we don't know anything about it. It was there when we got here this weekend. You know, we were going through the whole thing and nothing, nothing ever happened. And we ended up falling asleep eventually. And we got up the next morning. Literally the first thing we all did with daylight was go down to the creek. And guess what? There was no off-road diesel sign. We're in the middle of nowhere, y'all. That's like the kind of middle of nowhere where if a car rolls by, you don't miss it. The cracks and the pops echo off the valley walls. I, you don't, you don't miss it. In the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, on a road that we might see one person go running by, you know, driving by us on an entire weekend, maybe one person in the middle of the night. You can't even see down in that creek in the middle of the night. It's not like your headlights shine down, down in it. If a car did go by, you're not seeing that sign in the creek. You would have to be out with like a flashlight. It, it didn't. That's not what happened. The sign disappeared in the middle of the night and we all heard it happen and it sounded violent. Whatever the hell took it. It was loud. It was wonky because it was just, it was making all the noise in the world. And that is a true freaking story. And to this day, I have no idea and I have no hypothesis. I have no postulations whatsoever as to what the heck happened to that stupid off-road diesel sign. I have no idea, but there is no explanation for where it went or what happened to it. There's none whatsoever. Cause that next morning, I will tell you this. One thought that crossed our minds was I said, maybe it was hanging right on a ledge and maybe there's a deeper hole than we thought right there at the edge. And maybe that was it rolling down into the hole. Maybe it finally kind of slid loose of whatever was holding it up. And we found some big, long sticks and we fashioned with some other things that we had tied them and roped them all together and started probing the water as close as we could get. And it's, it's freaking 18 inches deep all the way across. There's nowhere. It's not down in the bottom of that water hole. It just something took it and didn't even bother to like say thank you, which actually, as I say that, probably glad it didn't. Anyway, it's time to go to a commercial break. That is the end of the first half of tonight's show. When we come back, we will get into some on the fringe stories. And these, I assure you, will raise your hair. And send the chills down your spine. But that is not a money back guarantee. That is a guarantee based on absolutely nothing. We'll see you on the other side of the break. What is up, all of you wayward souls? I want to tell you guys about our newest sponsor, Bendetti Optics. 
a brand based right here in the good old US of A, Portland, Oregon, to be exact. And I bought my first pair of Bendetti sunglasses about a year and a half ago and fell in love with them so much so that I got online and ordered a couple more pair. And when I did, there was a small shipping snafu, an order fulfillment snafu, and I got on the phone, gave them a call, and guess what? I get a call back from who? One of the big men themselves, right there in Portland from the top of the chain, have a great conversation, and we end up starting this great relationship we have. They more than made right, the little snafu that occurred, and I am now a huge proponent of them because I can tell you from personal experience, they are good people, and they are trying to compete with the big boys out there coming in at a price point of about $40, but using the exact same frame material, TR90, and the same polarization process as the big guys. As it turns out, something I think we are already probably knew in our hearts, when you buy big name sunglasses, you're buying a big name. Not necessarily any more quality than you can get somewhere else, like at Bendetti Optics. They have 29 different styles. They have multiple polarization options for whatever climate you happen to live in. And they back it up with like this lifetime guarantee that if your dog eats your sunglasses, it doesn't matter how you break them. Send it back in with a check to cover shipping and handling and you're golden. You got a new pair on the way. These guys are truly trying to do it right. And they have this philosophy that a really good pair of sunglasses should not cost you so much that you are afraid to wear them. And I think all of us outdoorsmen can relate to that. So if you guys, like me, are very practical and like to get more bang for your buck and wear some great looking sunglasses, check out BendettiOptics.com. That's B-E-N-D-E-T-T-I, Optics.com. Or you can go over to Instagram slash BendettiOptics. And that I highly suggest, whether you buy a pair or not, just to check out the cutest pupper you'll ever see modeling sunglasses. Once again, that's BendettiOptics.com. And make sure and let them know Wayward Stories sent you. And welcome back. Thank you guys for sticking around through the sponsor break. Let's get on with the rest of tonight's show. Again, let's keep the pleasantries aside and let's just tell our spooky stories like Halloween, Samhain. It is a special time of year for many of us who like the weird, the wacky, the unusual, the spiritual, perhaps. So let's stay in the mood. Let's not waste a bunch of time and let's just keep rocking because these could take a minute to tell these stories. You guys know me. I am long-winded by nature. First story back from the break is going to be about the Hornet spook light. This spook light exists up right inside the border of Oklahoma, but it's right near Joplin, Missouri. It's literally, it's the, sometimes it's called the tri-state spook light because it's literally where... Missouri, Kansas, and Oklahoma all kind of come together. It's very close to Miami, Oklahoma as well, which is also a fascinating place to go check out and definitely worth a road trip for you guys. Miami, Oklahoma has one of the only extant original sections of the Ribbon Road, U.S. Route 66. And when I say Ribbon Road, any of you know what I'm talking about, know what that means. And if not, you can go Google it because we're not getting into that tonight. But Miami also has the Coleman Theater, beautiful, which is an awesome, awesome historic theater. When we went there, we were given VIP access because you walk around with a big enough camera in any town and you're there to film something. They'll let you, I mean, they'll give you their children. It's crazy. It's crazy. Take it. It's free. He's a good kid. Take him. He can be a grip. It's, it's crazy. But we got to see old smugglers tunnels, so to speak. Prohibition era 
the tunnels. They took us down into some of them that went underneath the theater. It went underneath the bank. It went underneath a lot of the things in downtown Miami. And it all had to do with speakeasies and such during the Prohibition area. So we got to see a glimpse of history that not a lot of people get to see unless they've cleaned some of it up and started to open it to the public in the last 13 years. At the time, we were getting a special treat and it was super awesome. But Miami is an awesome city to visit. It's a cool little place. It should definitely be on your bucket list. You guys up there in Missouri, oh, Rob C., and uh, Josh, my boy from Roton, or ex-Roton, Josh, you guys, that's a cool road trip for you guys. You might come down and check out the Hornet Spooklight and hang out in Miami, Oklahoma, you know, get a little bit of, little bit of uh, traveling in for a Halloween weekend. But anyway, the Hornet Spooklight is described most often as an orange ball of light. The orb travels from east to west along a four-mile gravel road, long called the Devil's Promenade by area locals. The Spooklight often referred to as the Joplin Spooklight or the Tri-State Spooklight, is actually in Oklahoma near the small town of Quapaw. However, it is most often seen from the east, which is why it's been attached to the tiny hamlet of Hornet, Missouri, and the larger, better-known town of Joplin. According to the legend, the Spooklight was first seen by Native Americans along the infamous Trail of Tears in 1836. However, the first official report occurred in 1881 in a publication called the Ozark Spooklight. The ball of fire, described as varying from the size of a baseball to a basketball, dances and spins down the center of the road at high speeds, rising and hovering above the treetops before it retreats and disappears. Others have said it always sways from side to side, like a lantern being carried by some invisible force. In any event, the orange fire-like ball has reportedly been appearing nightly for well over 100 years. According to the locals, the best time to view the spooklight is between the hours of 10 p.m. and midnight, and it tends to shy away from groups of people and loud sounds. The Hornet Spooklight, y'all, is incredibly famous. It has been investigated by the U.S. Corps of Engineers. It's been investigated by multiple paranormal groups and societies and things from all over the world. It may be one of the most famous spook lights in North America. Okay. It's, I mean, it literally gets mentioned in the same tier as when you hear the Min Min lights, which happen in Australia, or the Marfa lights, which we talked about last week, or Brown Mountain. It's on that echelon of fame. Okay. That's what the Hornet spook light is. So much so that when we shot there for On the Fringe, we went there once, didn't get the results we wanted, and when we got down to the end of the season and we're needing some things that were close and accessible, we went back. Actually, there's there's two reasons we went back. But one was to further investigate, and the other was because there was a place in Joplin called Pizza by Stout 2 back in the day. They had, I don't, I'm going to misquote it, but it was over 90. I think it was 95 beers on tap, on tap. And over, I don't know, God, 200 in the house or something like that, you could get beers from Japan. Like my buddy Joe was like super into Japan, our our sound guy. He was all like, he was big into Japanese culture and he's like had a Japanese beer. The food was incredible, like non-processed cheese kind of stuff. You know, like it was super organic. It was super real. It was so, 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 so good. And actually... May have very well had a big part to play in why we went back to Joplin twice to investigate this spook light. 
Unfortunately, for any of you that might want to check out Pizza by Stout 2, it was destroyed by the Joplin tornado in 2012 on Range Line Road when just basically Range Line was wiped out. And it was uh, the family that owned it decided to, to call it at that, you know, take the insurance money, cut their losses and say it's been a good run. And I'll never forget years after I didn't know that it was destroyed at first in that tornado. And then a few years after 2012, I started thinking about on the fringe and the spook light. I was like, man, I want to go up there and eat a pizza by stout. That place was so good. Only to get online and find out that it had been destroyed. And you can find their website. If you go Google it, if it's still up, you can find their website where they basically said, we just want to thank the community for 35 years or however long it was. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we've decided the best way forward for us is to not reopen. And so some this amazing place that we found out by word of mouth from people that y'all, it was famous locally. It was famous. And uh, it's just really sad that it had to die that way. But it was awesome. Awesome pizza and a memory. I'm so glad that I have. But the Hornet light itself. We came up with some pretty serious theories on this thing that went from the piezoelectric all the way to swamp gas, which this is what the Army Corps of Engineers, I believe, what they tried to decide is the Army Corps. And up there, they get all pissy about it, right? People start trying to disprove it. They don't like it. They didn't know we were there to actually investigate it. We weren't there to necessarily try to disprove it. We wanted to catch it. But we have to be skeptical. Like we had to be skeptical. Like even if we're up there and who knows at the time again, I didn't know how I felt about all this stuff, but I knew that it puts this lotion on its skin. I'm being told what to do by the people that hold my future possibly in my hands. If I want to make it in film and television to go find spooky stuff. So here we are ghost hunting, whether we believe in it or not, we're going to see what happens. So we're still being super skeptical, right? If it turns out that, I mean, the way we tried to approach it was, Let's investigate it and try to explain away everything that can be explained. And if there's anything left that can't be rationally explained away, then maybe that's something worth talking about. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a deductive, deductive thing there. And it seems like it made sense to me. Well, anyway, people up there don't like that. You know, when you're out there trying to explain it away, people get freaking angry, angry about it. But anyway, around it. We'd read, we'd done all the research. We'd read up on it. We went out there to go and see the spook light. Guess what? We found it. I ain't even lying to you. I told you when I started this episode, if I say it tonight, it's the truth. We found that spook light on the road that I just told you where it was in that description. Told you exactly where it was. That's from legendsofamerica.com, by the way. It was there. We saw it. And then as we were watching it and freaking the hell out and filming it, got it on tape. We're like, Oh my God, we got it. We got the spook light. We got the spook light. We're losing our minds. Right. And then suddenly headlights, car headlights appear. Cause it, you know, it runs up and down this road. It's the way it's supposed to be. Right. And then a car headlights appear and we're like, Oh crap. And the light disappeared, chased it away. Right. We're like, well crap. And then this happens three or four more times. And then we're like, God dang it. It's just like some of the stories we read where it says, well, I saw the light and then a car came and chased it away. And, you know, the car would show up and it would disappear. And in that moment, the light bulb went off in my head. All of our heads, I think, because I remember I said, wait a second. And then one of the other guys was like, I know what's happening. And we figured it out. So we put it to the test. We took our Suburban drove all the way down that road to the other end 
turned around and came back. And guess what? The spook light showed up until we topped a certain hill when the headlights became visible. This is a four mile long road, straight as an arrow, but it has low rising hills in it. Okay. They just go up and down. Then our headlights appear on camera and the spook light disappears at the same time. So we tried it again and then again, and we proved that the spook light that shows up on the road that I just described to you beyond a shadow of a doubt is created by cars traveling from west to east. Because remember, what did it say? Best, easily, most easily and best viewed from the east end looking west. We recreated it over and over and over again and proved that the Hornet spook light is the light of cars. And then those cars, and then it was like, oh my God, how has everyone seen this and seen this and seen this and read these stories? And no one ever thought, wait a second, how come every story ends with a car always comes to chase it away? A car always shows up right when we start to see it. And nobody ever thought maybe the car's the one making the light. It has to do with something in the atmosphere there. It probably has to do with temperature inversions in the atmosphere. And it probably does have to do with heavy, heavy, like, heavy air down in those valleys. Like there is a fault line. The new it runs from the new Madrid fault all the way down. And it actually branches off and comes through that part of Oklahoma. There's a lot going on. A lot of heavy metals like the, uh, Oh gosh, what is it? The pitcher super fun site, but it's town of pitcher, Oklahoma. Like I had to be abandoned. The whole place turned into a super fun site an EPA super fun site because all the heavy metals were giving everyone cancer. There's a lot of heavy metals, phosphorescent materials, pizza, possibly piezoelectric activity could be coming from a fault line. There's some weirdness in the atmosphere, but it creates an optical illusion where those headlights turn into a dancing, glowing ball right in the middle of the road for a couple of minutes until a car shows up. And I should point out that we timed it every time at the speed we drove the speed limit of the road. And it happened, and I want to say it was actually the light appeared for two minutes and 19 seconds every time exactly before the headlight showed up. We were even able to time it by controlling our own speed, and I don't remember the time, but that popped into my head for some reason, 219. But we recreated it three or four times at the same speed, and it disappeared in exactly the same second every time. We, without a doubt, correlated it to our vehicle. That said... And other people have done that as well. We weren't, we didn't know about those other people at the time. Some of them did it after we did, as a matter of fact, but we felt like at the time we were like, whoa, we didn't know anyone else had done that. We were pretty proud of it. That's when we found out people in Miami, Oklahoma didn't like it that much. <laughs> they thought that was a terrible idea. Oh, tourism dollars, baby, tourism dollars. But anyway, around it, I will say this don't let it keep you away. Go back because here's the thing. So many of those sightings, now this is oral tradition, and there is at least one publication. When was it? 1881, in a publication called the Ozark Spooklight. Now I say that, quoting legendsofamerica.com, it's not uncommon for a publication called the Ozark Spooklight. Maybe it doesn't even exist. You never know. You got to go check those kinds of sources. That doesn't give a name of the source or who wrote it or it gives the name, but not the source, where to find it, who the author was. I've run across this before, where something was claimed because someone else said it, because someone else had said it, that they had heard say it, and come to find out there is no evidence whatsoever. That's possible. But it is claimed that that light showed up before the highways. U.S. Route 66 specifically is the one that supposedly some people thought was creating this light. This No, the one we saw was coming from cars driving on the actual county road that you're viewing it on. 
but there was other speculations that it was coming from Route 66 back in the day when Route 66 was big, big and popular. Um, so many different theories, but the bottom line is if the oral traditions going back so far are true, it was happening before automobiles were ubiquitous. It was happening before automobiles even existed, actually. And then all you had was trains. And what are the odds of a train and got a train light in the 1800s? Wasn't like the high powered beams that they have today. Like, God, what was a train light? A lantern hanging on the front end? Either way, that seems a lot less likely. However, we were able to debunk part of it. But it's still fun to go watch and you should go try that experiment for yourself and you should go hang out in Joplin because Joplin is a cool city and you should go check out Miami, Oklahoma and get your legend trip on guys. Like I said, that's what this treat week is all about. There's some awesome stuff out there to go see and we're about to move in to really our last three of the night and all three of these have unexplainable circumstances that we did not debunk or disprove and you're about to hear about them. Our next stop on the list is going to be the Dover Light, north of Dover in the Ozark Mountains in central Arkansas. The Dover Light is touted as the spook light that never disappoints. And I will speak to the veracity of that because when my boys and the On the Fringe crew headed up there in 2009, it did not disappoint us at all. Funny aside, we put, you know, a five minute teaser on our YouTube channel at the time um, with footage that we had of the light and we got a lot of footage of the light and it's now, I forgot all about it. You know, I sold out on the fringe, you know, 13, 14 years ago and I freaking come to find out it's got like 25,000 views on that one particular video, the Dover light. It got shared just recently on only in your Like one of their, they wrote an article on the Dover light or whatever, and they linked our thing. I was like, I texted my buddy Jordan. I was like, yo, we were like 13 years too early, man. Where were these guys at when we needed that kind of support to keep us moving? Right. But anyway, around it, you can still go find that. You go to YouTube, go to on the fringe Dover light. You will most likely find it pretty easily. Um, the Dover lights got kind of a fascinating, fascinating little history to it into the interactions with humans but the folklore around it is a lot more ambiguous and there's very, very little. I remember at the time we had a hard time finding a lot of good information on where the origin of the story came from. But from here, I'm going to give you from nwaonline.com. And this is their little online article about it. And then I will tell you our story from there. Arkansas has myths and folklore like any other, like any of the other several states. And one of the biggest remains a mystery to this day. The Dover Lights has perplexed thousands of people traveling through the Ozarks, and those fortunate enough to have seen them will swear up and down there was something strange about those lights moving through the valley. For those unfamiliar with the town of Dover, it rests about 10 miles north of Russellville off Interstate 40, halfway between Little Rock and Fort Smith. With just over 1,000 people, it's small enough to not even have a traffic light, although it used to. The lights aren't actually in Dover, but they're close enough to have the town included in the name. The lights can sometimes be seen at night from a pull-off spot west of Scenic Highway 7 and north of the Long Pool Recreation Area. The classic story is that drivers head up Moppin Flat Road at night, pull off, and look west down a valley along a creek. If they're lucky, they'll see small floating colored lights down in the trees. If they're unlucky, it's just another foggy night north of Dover. 
Stories about the origin of the lights range from the supernatural to the more mundane. One tale says the lights are spirits of Spanish conquistadors searching the valley for treasure. Others say the lights are caused by natural gas leaking from local caves or even campers down in the valley. Either way, it seems something only Agents Mulder and Scully would be able to solve. Okay. That's the legend that we had at the time was essentially Spanish conquistadors searching for like a buried treasure they left behind or for a gold mine, I believe. And then there was one other one that I could not relocate today. That's again, 13 years ago and the internet's a whole different place than it was then. But it seemed like it had something to do with a settler and like a family. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. It's interesting little story. Here's the thing though. Those lights are there and I stand testament to it. And also because we went up there to try and debunk for the purpose of anything that's left could be considered possibly reasonable evidence. We went down there. We, we worked out the triangulations on topographic maps. We figured out where the hell the lights had to be appearing from based on what the stories were. And there's nothing there. There's no way to get there. There aren't even trails back in there. There is no case. People say people camping. There are people that are like, oh, it's just people camping. They're freaking where? There's nowhere down there to camp. At the time we were there, where we were at and where we actually saw the lights from, there is no camping there. There is nothing there. Like it would just had to have been someone randomly there with a bill, like a arc welder. You'll understand that in a minute. There's no way. There's no way. There's no way where we saw the light specifically. There's no way that anyone could have been there with anything that could have created the lights we saw. So let me tell you a story. We go down there and this is the way we rolled into any town. When we were rolling on the fringe, we never announced it. We never told anyone we were coming. We showed up in town. We went out and did our thing at night. No one knew because that's how you limit, you know, people um, contaminating your investigation. You know, there's a lot of people like say in Hornet that want that spook light to be real. It might just help that spook light be real. You know what I mean? That could be anywhere. And I'm saying they, I'm not saying they do that. I'm just an example. A lot of places, tourism's a big deal. That's all the money they get they might just perpetuate a little bit of a hoax to make some money. It's been done before, right? So we'd roll into town quiet. We'd do our thing. We showed up that night, middle of the night, looking for the Dover light. There it was, plain as day. All of us saw it to the tune that we got six hours of footage of that light. We had three cameras running on it. We had our production camera that did not run in night vision. And we had two cameras that could run in night vision. And between those three cameras, we got six hours. We sat there for two hours watching that light to the point that we were there so long. It started to get boring. It started to lose its appeal. The reason I said something and mentioned the word arc welder earlier. If any of you have ever seen an arc welder, if you've ever seen an arc from a distance, or even through a welding mask. But if you've ever seen an arc, you know how bright it is. It is intense white energy, correct? That's what that light looked like to us. Who could have had what that far down in the middle and the bottom of that valley that could float around aimlessly that could produce that intense of a beam? And that's the thing. It wasn't a beam of light, guys. It literally looked like a ball of light. And when we zoomed in, with my binoculars, when we zoomed in with the cameras, it's what it looked like. 
like I would suspect like what people call ball lightning. Like it looked like an orb of energy that was rolling like it was alive. Almost. It was rolling on itself. It was like just alive with energy. It looked like a welder's arc. That's exactly what it looked like. It was intense light. And it, it, part of the time it faded in and out. It faded in and out for two hours. It did this two hours. It did this. And we got that footage and you can go find that YouTube video. And towards the end of it, the first section of footage we show because of the quality of the footage and the uploading it to YouTube 13 years ago, when we didn't have as much, they didn't give you as much data as they do now, et cetera, et cetera. You can't see the first cup, you know, minute or so of the black where we're talking about seeing the light. But when you get towards the end of that little five minute clip, you can see the light because that was when it was one of the more intense times where to us, it looked like a ball of glowing energy that was just like undulating and rolling on itself. We saw it guys. I have five men, one, two, three, four, four men that will stand up and testify to that. We all saw it together. We witnessed it firsthand. Never seen anything like that in my entire life up until that point, And I haven't since up until this point, it was really there. And I will be damned if it was some redneck in the bottom of a valley with a spotlight. It ain't happening. Not what that light did. Not the way it did it. Not in the places it was. And we went down there and looked. After the fact, we went and looked for tire tracks, for roads, for trails, for anything. We scoured satellite footage, you know, satellite pictures of the area on Terra server. We did all the things that you're supposed to do. There ain't nothing down there. There's no freaking way. Something for real happens down there. Is it natural? Most likely. I don't think that's a ghost. You know what it is? It probably is piezoelectric action. The way that it acted, it probably was like a form of ball lightning. Y'all, it's down in a valley. Like, with the Ozark Mountains and all the uh, the karst photography and the limestone and the what it probably was. But that's still awesome and insane. And it's still a spook light. It's still a spooky light. Even if you can't explain it that way, even if it is a ghost, whatever. But I think it could even be, it doesn't matter. It's there. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It's there because I saw it with my own eyes and it's real and it was on tape and it's still on tape to this day on youtube.com. If you go and look and I'm standing here telling you as a testimony, I was the person that shot some of that footage. I saw it with my own eyes. It's really there on the fringe Dover spook light YouTube. If you, if you're interested in seeing Justin without a beard as a young baby, 13 years ago in night vision. So it's hard to tell it's me, but it's not really, you can still tell anyway, interesting aside, but the Dover lights there. Russellville is pretty cool little town. Little Rock's an awesome town. Legend tripping, guys. Ghost tripping. Come down and check out the Dover Spook Light. Check out some of the awesome little restaurants around towns. You know, get back. Get out. Get and see the things. Go out and live your life. And the Dover Spook Light, they say it never disappoints. Well, it sure as hell didn't disappoint us. And if you come down to check it out, it's a good chance it's not going to disappoint you either. And then you can holler at me and tell me what your experience was like. Okay. We are coming into the home stretch. Two stories to go, and these are the very best. So, I feel honored to be able to read to you a retelling of the oral tradition of the Choctaw Little People 
that was sent to me by our friend SJ. Do you remember us talking about SJ back and about how her house had burned down and all that? Well, she is of Choctaw origin. She is of Choctaw descent, rather. And I asked her, because I knew I was going to talk about the little people tonight, because I have a story that has to do with them that happened to me. And I thought, you know what? I could read one of the stories I found on the internet, or I could ask her what and how she heard it. I would love to tell a retelling from someone who got it from their grandparents in the actual line of the oral traditions. And she was so gracious as to tell me how she heard it. And I don't know. It's so cool to me. SJ, thank you so, so much for taking the time to transcribe it out and email it to me. I'm super excited. And like I said, honored and humbled to be able to read it here. And I love it. But before we give you this little overview, as she tells it of the little people, So you guys understand, as is part and parcel of On the Fringe, we were out there exploring things and we were looking for all these awesome ideas and places to go and check out. I heard the story of the Choctaw Little People many years ago in high school. And it was told to us by an older Choctaw woman at the time who lived out in Bates, Arkansas. Um, And it's very similar to exactly what SJ has told us here tonight when we go to read it. And I mean, it goes to show you how important the oral traditions are and how well kept they are because it's so, so, so similar. I mean, these stories are amazing, but she told us about it. And many years ago, we used to think, you know, though, how fascinating would it be to see one of these things? Of course, as kids or whatever, being foolish. But when it came around on the fringe, it's like, yo, let's go explore because I have Choctaw heritage. And it is said that I've one version of the story. It is said that you won't see it if you're not of Choctaw heritage. It's like, well, I've got the heritage. So let's go try. Let's see what we can come up with. You know, maybe we can come across something. So we went on an on the fringe adventure to go and try to find the Choctaw spirit people. And we found something that night. And it kind of is troubling to me to this day. But anyway, let me tell you the story of the Choctaw Little People, as told by our friend of the show, SJ. Here's the story of the Kaui and Ukasha. If you go into the woods at night and you hear strange noises or a stick or stones fall near you or even hit you, that is the Bopoli. They are little, small, mischievous people or tricksters. They are like pygmies. The Kaui and Ukasha are more like the boogeymen. They are small and sneaky. They slip through their forest home from tree to tree, and this applies more to boys than girls. You might go into the woods. You might be playing or running with your dog, and suddenly you will be grabbed by these small little shadow people, and you will be dragged away and be forced to go on a long walk. They will make you walk and walk until you come to their home. There you will be taken far away to a cave, the home of the Kaui and Akasha. They will be old and wise, looking with long white hair, and beards, but only two to three feet tall. They will look at you and through you into your soul. They will sit around you and they will ask you questions, but these are trick questions. They will test you. They will offer you a knife. It will be a beautiful knife with a carved handle, and if you take it, it will be bad for you. You will grow up to be a bad person, and you will maybe even be a murderer one day. You have failed the test. But if you do not take it, if you say no... I do not think I will accept your knife. 
then you will pass on to the next test. They will offer you poisonous herbs. And if you do not recognize these herbs as poisonous and you take those herbs, you will not be able to help your people. You will not be a healer for your people. You have failed your test. But if you refuse these herbs, you will be offered healing herbs. And if you accept these herbs, you will become a leader for your people. And they will tell you many secrets that will help you become a great healer. Very few children will wait for those healing herbs. And that is why there are few healers around today. When you are taken home, you must never tell anyone where you have been. You must never tell anyone what has happened while you were gone. You will not even remember what happened yourself. All that has happened will slowly fade from your memory. As you grow older, you will begin to fulfill those predictions made by those Kawianakasha. So long ago, on a long-forgotten dream quest, you will become a bad person, perhaps even a murderer, or a worthless person who cannot help your people, or you may actually become a holy man or a healer and live a good life. And that is the story of the Kawi Anakasha, as told by our friend SJ. I hope I'm saying Kawi Anakasha right. I'm probably not, definitely not with the proper inflections, but it's the best I can do here. This story is fascinating, and I love these kinds of, of stories, native stories. They tell us so much. And as she said, she believes it was a, a story for teaching a lesson. And there's absolute validity, absolutely validity to that. And lots of people think that about many, many, many of the stories that are of this same vein. But I've got like an experience that I had in 2009 that made me think there might be something else to it too, that there might be some reality behind it. And I'm going to tell you about that night now. So we go out, we go down deep, deep, deep again. I told you we were going to come back to this deep into the Shawnee ridges in the Washita mountains of Southeast Oklahoma. And we're back in the Shawnee ridges area because again, it's one, it's desolate back there. There's not many houses back in there. You know, there's not many homes. There's not many properties that are personal properties. It's mostly national forest. It's way the heck back in there. And it was close to where we were when I was growing up. So I knew the area and I knew we could go back in there and get really far away from everything. So we go way, way, way back in there past the old hunting camps by a long shot that we used to go to heck we went down closer to the kind of area where I had my little adventure that I kind of sort of lost time or whatever the heck happened down there that seemed so weird we were closer down in that area way back in there and we set up camp and we go exploring you know we started our investigation we had night vision cameras you know we did the whole thing but as the night progressed we got further into the night our camera operator one of our two camera operators Keith was running the infrared the the night vision camera and he started seeing lights on the horizon but it wasn't a horizon actually let me look at he's across the valley in the side of the hill across from us and think of this we're in a holler a good old mountain or a good old washita mountain holler way back down in the deep stuff southeast oklahoma why were we looking for the little people there because southeast oklahoma is choctaw territory is the choctaw nation of oklahoma what they were given when they were removed from the east. Okay. We start seeing these lights on the camera. They're very indistinct. You can almost barely see them. You know, they're hard to see, but they're sure enough there. We had all that footage. There's an episode of this as well. You could actually probably still get that on Amazon. I'm not sure, but you can see the little lights. They're everywhere. And we're looking at them and everyone's taking a turn and taking a look at these lights. And they're sure enough there. 
we tried to explain it away with like it could be bugs with reflections of the IR, but like they were too static. They were steady in the camera. They did move. They had movement, so we knew it wasn't something on the lens, but they weren't like bugs flitting across the screen. It was more like there were just numbers of them appearing more and more in the side of the hill directly across from us where there was no inhabitation. I make that an important point because that was something we pointed out to each other that night as we were trying to explain this stuff away. Where is it coming from? That's not like lights from street lights way down off the mountain in the valley, 13 miles away or something. You know, that's a, that's valid critical thinking we were trying to apply. That ain't it because this is literally in the face of a freaking steep bluff that goes straight up. What are those? As we're looking at this stuff, okay, things start to fall in the woods around us. Again, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Looking at you right in the eyes. You watching on YouTube? Look at the camera. I'm looking at you right in the eyes. If I'm lying, I'm dying. This stuff started falling all around us. It sounded small at first. And we started trying to find it. We started trying to look. And we first started, thought we started trying to check each other. There was a good group of us down there that night. I think there was seven or eight of us at least running this episode. And we were like, yo, who's doing that? Quit screwing around. The first thought we had was who's freaking messing with us of our own team, right? Because there wasn't anyone else out there with us. Promise you that. No one could even got to us part of where we were. Um, Who did it? Who's doing it? That was our first thoughts. And we started looking around. So we actually made a little, we ended up to the point that we made a deal. It was like, get over here. Everyone get in a circle, set up the camera, set, got all our headlamps on. Everyone got in a circle with our hands forward in the circle in front of us with our headlamps shining on our hands on camera. So everyone, including the camera, could see that everyone present hands were accounted for and not moving. And the stuff continued to fall. And then we started thinking, okay, maybe it's just pine. Maybe there's a breeze that we can't quite hear up in the top of these loblolly pines. Maybe it's just, it's just just some, uh, uh, pine cones starting to drop. Maybe it's that. And we start looking around in the woods and trying to find anything that's dropping. And we literally start finding tiny stones like that big around, like size of big marbles or a little bit bigger on top of the detritus on the florist floor which down in this area, because we dug through it to try to find the actual earth below it, was over a foot deep. It was like closer to 18 inches deep before we hit actual ground and dirt. These rocks had no reason, plausibly, for being on top. But then we are like, still, still, they could have rolled down from somewhere. It could have happened. could have happened. Until we're standing there talking and we're trying to decide and we're looking at these lights still. The lights are still happening in the camera and the stuff's still falling around us. And we're still, we're back into a circle again and we're talking and trying to assess what to do from here. And then a rock thuds right next to someone's foot just outside the circle and rolls right into the middle of the circle. And when I say circle, it's not like we'd drawn some kind of like sigil or something. I mean like we were making a circle like a football huddle. It was spread out a little bit more because, you know, personal space, bubbles and stuff. But we were talking in that manner and trying to decide what to do next. And you hear that thud just outside of the circle and that thing skips and then rolls right into the center of the circle where everyone could see it. Everyone there saw it still moving at some point as it came to rest. We were like, yo, that is actually a rock. Picked it up and then looked it over. It was a freaking legit rock. You heard? A rock came out of the freaking air from somewhere in the woods. And we were the only people out there in the woods. 
So we decided it was time to go back to camp immediately. I'm actually getting a little bit freaked out just remembering it because it's getting real for me again as I'm retelling the story. It's been so long since I've told it this in depth. We go back up to camp. We have to wrap up the episode, right? So we, we get the cameras out. We start talking about what the experiences were. We started talking. I don't remember that part. Like I'd have to go back and watch the episode. I'm sure I've got it somewhere. Um, but we started talking about wrapping it up, telling the story, you know, what we're experiencing, how can we explain it? You know, what we could possibly do to further investigate it. And so we get the story wrapped up, but there was like this growing sense of unease. There was this growing sense at least within me at the time, I didn't know it was with everyone else too, but just within me, there was this growing sense of like, wait, I get out of here. This isn't right. Something here is not right. And we, we were sitting there, we had the fire and I mean, we had that fire blazing. We needed all the light we could and no one would go to bed. It was funny. No one would say anything, but no one would go to bed. Everyone just kept sitting there, stoking the fire up more. It gets on 12 o'clock. One o'clock, one thirty, two o'clock. We're still sitting there stoking the fire. Everyone's just sitting around kind of talking, getting real quiet. And finally, and I don't remember who said it, finally someone said, yo, things are not right here. We have to leave. And then everyone was like, yes, thank you, God, for saying that. I didn't want to say everyone immediately stood up and we packed up. We put that campfire out with anything wet we could find, every gallon of water we had with us. And we packed the hell up and we left that night as fast as we could. And nobody would get out of sight of each other. We actually worked in pairs. Again, the headlamps, the spotlights, we, we, it was freaking crazy. And we packed the hell up in the middle of the night and drove like two hours back home to our homes, wherever they happened to be. We were all spread out back then in the middle of the night because something was direly wrong where we were. And I do not know how to describe it any other way, except it literally felt like I was in fear of my life. I literally felt like I might actually be in danger. And what makes it creepier is even though creepy things had happened that night, creepy things had happened other nights with us too. But what happened that night was different in the way that we all, everyone had the same gut-wrenching sense of sickness like this feels so wrong we got the hell out of there we had actual activity happening we got actual things on camera and we actually freaking had a rock come bouncing into camp when we were down there looking for these little spirit people that supposedly have rocks and throw rocks and bang sticks together wait that's the bapoli two different groups bapoli and the kawianakasha but we're down there looking for these spirit people these little people and we got something, we got the side effects, not the side effects, but the direct effects of what we were looking for, though we didn't see anything. Something was down there and something messed with us. And if I told I told you, if I'm lying, I am dying. It is a true freaking story. And again, I have like seven witnesses that would sit on a freaking stand and testify to that because we all lived it. We all, to this day, every once in a while it gets mentioned, you know, it was a really, really Creepy night. And I don't necessarily blame it on the Kawianakasha or the Bopoli or anything like that because this felt different. This felt different. This was bad and this was scary. This was like a sense of dread. Hey, what's up, guys? Sorry to interrupt your episode. Um, Justin here. Hey, a couple of things came to came to light after I got this whole episode recorded, uploaded the whole nine that I had forgotten to put into the story you just heard, which was the Choctaw Little People episode, and they weren't, in my opinion. They were weird enough, and, and they were absolutely a part of that night. They weren't me 
taking the time here. Like, look at me, y'all. I just came in from work and a Mad Max situation at the grocery store. Like it has been a whole, holy hell of a day, but we're less than 24 hours from the drop of this episode. And I think these are important enough to add in. I don't want this story to go out there without the fullness of the context that it has. And as a matter of fact, the way these things came to my attention that I had forgot about them, some of them I literally completely forgot about until reminded is a weird story in its own right. And I will tell you that at the end. Anyway, after I uploaded these episodes the other night, my boy, Jorbo, camera operator, original PVG, Possum Valley gangsta, one of the originals, sends me a message. This is this is his message on Instagram. Yo, you forgot about the Pepsi can. Okay, y'all, the Pepsi can. This is important because this was our very first indicator that this was going to be a weird night. Okay, we got there in the afternoon, plenty of broad daylight. We always went to scout. Remember, I've mentioned this. Um, and we were at the back in there. We had scouted out our camp. We had found a place to build our camp, which was way the heck away from our cars down the hill, you know, off a freaking really unimproved old logging road. And then we were scouting. We were literally trekking through the woods up and down the side of the hills on no established trails or roads whatsoever and come across a Pepsi can laying on top of the detritus, which I told you earlier was between 12 and 18 inches deep. And that's exactly why we even dug down to see how deep it was. And I'd forgot about that fact. That's why we wanted to see because this Pepsi can was in the freaking middle of freaking nowhere. And I can't even begin to tell you how freaking in the middle of freaking nowhere it was. Okay. Not only were we as far as we could go in a car so far back in the middle of nowhere. Now we're way off down a hill, a mountainside, a ravine where there's not even trails to walk on. We're just randomly in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the Shawnee Ridges, in the middle of nowhere. And there's a Pepsi can on top, laying literally flat on top of 18 inches of detritus. Like it had net. And, and you might think, well, Justin, somebody came through on their four wheeler or what the heck ever. And they threw it out. Y'all, that would be logical and rational and an easy way to explain this away, save for one fact. This Pepsi can was in pristine condition on top of the forest floor mat in 2009, but it was a beaver tail pop top Pepsi can. Y'all, I didn't do the research. I didn't look it up, but the last time beaver tail tops on soda cans were produced had to have been at the very, very most recent maybe the early 1990s it even had the old pepsi logo my guess beaver tails were super big in the 70s um probably into the 80s and that's my guess as to the age of that but even at that the very best it could be would be the 1990s because that's when i was old enough to remember soda cans and i don't ever remember a beaver tail soda can in my entire life y'all i was 10 years old in 1990, I never, ever remember seeing them. So I'm thinking early 80s, if not earlier. That Pepsi can was at least, was that 20 to 30 years old at the very minimum? On top of decades of forest floor detritus that it should have been buried under in pristine condition and it wasn't even really faded. Y'all know how fast beer cans and Pepsi cans and soda cans fade. If you hike trails and you've ever seen one laying there and kick that thing over to pick it up and one side of it's almost white. Y'all, this has been out there for decades, somehow uncrushed, uncovered. Anyway, first indicator that it was going to be a weird freaking night. Okay, now let's get into the actual message he sent me real quick. Listening to the brushes with the unexplained episode. Bruh, 
You forgot to mention on the Little People episode that we heard what Joe said sounded like two Louisville sluggers being slammed together. That's when we decided to get out of there and when we started sharing how much we did not want to stay the night. I honestly felt like if I had went to sleep that night, I would have never woke up. We started off in pairs, taking stuff back to the car, but the feeling of dread kept building and building and building so much that we quickly went from making trips back to the vehicles paired up to all of us going back and forth together in a horizontal line from camp to car. That feeling of absolute horror kept growing so much that by the time we were trying to leave, we were in full-on panic mode. Duke and I were out of the cars trying to direct them as they backed up, and I kept feeling like at any moment I was going to be grabbed and pulled into the woods. We hauled Expletive out of there, and everyone in the Suburban was talking about how Expletive scared we were, so Expletive unashamedly at that, and that feeling stayed constant until we crossed the 8359 junction, and all of a sudden we said in unison that that feeling was gone, and then you Expletives called us and said the exact same thing, that once you passed the junction, everyone felt normal. Y'all, every word of that is true. I completely forgot about the sound Joe heard. Irish Joe, our camera operator, also an original Possum Valley gangsta. And he had, I think, I'm almost positive, and Jordan didn't say, but I, I, as I remember it now, I'm almost positive he had wandered down the hill of, you know, 40 or 50 yards to urinate. Um, and then he heard that. And I think we all heard a cracking sound. As I recall, I feel like it was a very faint sound that we were all kind of like, what? And then he came up and he said it sounded like two Louisville sluggers being cracked together, slammed together right next to him. And that's when we were all like, yep, it's time to leave. That's when that moment occurred. When we were like, that's it. We're gone. This is so messed up. Everyone was like, I've been feeling dread all this time. And that's when it started to go on downhill. Um, I also want to point out that months later, we went to the Bigfoot Festival in Honubi, Oklahoma. As one of our final episodes, it was going to be like a massive two-hour season finale or something. That's how we were going to try to wrap up our um, our pilot season. And we got to go explore with those guys. I talked about it last year. We got to go and explore and look for Bigfoot with them and learn about their super secret trade techniques or whatever and meet a bunch of anthropologists and physiologists like I talked about, Dr. Jeff Meldrum and R. Scott Nelson. Y'all, we met some real, real people that year. But they told us down there that the way big feet communicate to their understanding of what they believe is through tree knocks, which they described. And I kid you not. Sounds like slamming a wooden baseball bat into a tree is exactly what they said. And what did Joe say? What did Irish Joe White say? It sounded like two Louisville sluggers being slammed together right behind him. Y'all. That is trippy, and that is true. And also, one of the anthropologists there had a theory that Bigfoot has pheromones that induce the fight-or-flight mechanism in humans. Because a lot of times when we say Bigfoot stories, they talk about the fight-or-flight mechanism. And that that's why he thinks people rarely see them, right? Again, spooky season, y'all. Suspend your disbelief. Hang in here with us. It is the spooky weekend. And just sit back and relax and enjoy the fun. But that's what they said. And there was that night a legit fight or flight feeling that we all had. And we did hear those noises and those rocks did fall in the forest. And speaking of rocks, one other thing that I forgot that is so super freaking important. And I can't believe I forgot it. Where we were catching the lights 
out in the forest on the infrared that we couldn't see with our naked eye. Jordan reminded me that we had found a perfect circle, a ring of rocks around a tree. He called it a quote, end quote, fairy circle around a giant old growth pine tree. And those pine trees were probably 60, 80, 100 years old. Like those old lawbally pines, plantation pines, they grow up there 100 feet tall. Those dudes are usually 60 to 80 years old at that stage of their growth and development. This circle ringed around one of those old growth pine tree bases. And like they say, there's no such thing as a perfect circle in nature, right? Um, These rocks were big rocks, not little tiny ones like that we were seeing thrown around, but big ones like tiny, you know, bowling ball size type, you know, roughly rock boulders or not boulders, but rocks. And they were spaced so perfectly evenly, almost like a circle, like it was so close to being a perfect circle. That's what made it stand out. And we were like, yo, did we come up on some kind of a ritual side at some point? Yeah, guys, it was a whole thing that night. Everything he just said, you just got to hear it from another person's perspective. And y'all, that's the other weird thing. Why do you get this other perspective? And why did I get to add these extras in tonight? That I, honest to God, completely had slipped my mind after 15 years. Because when I uploaded the two episodes last Sunday at the same time, we rolled around a Tuesday night and I dropped what was supposed to be Tuesday's episode that you guys have already listened to, Ghost Trippin'. I accidentally dropped this one on YouTube first, the not one you're listening to tonight. And apparently Jordan, the only person out there in the world that probably listens to me, because I doubt Joe or Duke or anyone else does, the only person in the world that apparently listens to me, and I didn't find out that until last Tuesday night, which I love. Thank you, Jordan. That makes me feel so happy and special. Um, The only person out there that would have any idea and only person apparently that in the 30 seconds I had accident, I caught it. As soon as I dropped it, I caught it and started pulling it. And apparently it went through his subscription immediately. And apparently he started listening immediately because like 30 to 45 minutes later after my little snafu and I had fixed it up and dropped the proper episode, I get a message from him and it's this message. So literally the only human on this planet that's probably ever going to listen to me that would have known those facts and remembered that from that night and was able to add this into the story and not completely miss it was him. And he's the only person that got an accidental sneak peek. The only time I've ever done this ever in two years now, I've never accidentally dropped the wrong episode, dropped it for like 30 seconds, no more than 30 seconds and was already pulling it because I realized it as soon as I saw the thumbnail pop up that fast. And there you go. You get the whole story. But I'm going to get you guys back to tonight's show now. Big shout out to Jorbo. If any of you guys out there need a great director of photography, camera operator, and lighting tech, Instagram.com forward slash Hosspos. H-O-S-S-P-O-S-S. Heck of a dude. One of my favorite people to this day in the entire world. So thank you guys for dealing with my little interruption and uh now back to me i hope you're finding the toes of the season interesting tonight and a little bit creepy i only have one more and i know we have gotten super long tonight but i intended from the jump to let this episode run as long as it took to tell all the tales i wanted to tell and guess what i still didn't even get a few in but my head at this point is throbbing it's time to finish up 
In this episode, we did get everything into this episode. It was the last episode we made a few omissions on to keep the ball rolling as I was on my little recording marathon today. Final episode is the story of Tilly Willie's Bridge in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Tilly Willie's Bridge. Silly name, right? Well, it's one of those things where it's just a, a colloquialism that got picked up. Original settler family was the Wilsons. And a woman lived there named Matilda Wilson. And it was known as Matilda Wilson's Ford because she had a ford across the White River at the point where Tilly Willie's Bridge was a was built later on. And once the bridge was built, you know, I'm sure it became Tilly Willie's Ford at some point, but like you had Tilda Wilson, Tildy Wilson, and all those things initially or eventually got shortened into Tilly Willie. So you got Tilly Willie's Bridge. Tilly Willie's Bridge is famous in NWA. And it's got multiple, multiple ghost stories of many, many, many kinds. You have got the U of A college student who plunged off there in the 70s and died, supposedly. Though we couldn't find records of that, that one's actually probably plausible because that's totally researchable. Um, And then you got all these different stories. But supposedly what the haunting is, is there's a little green goblin man that kicks around in the water, supposedly. And then there's also this spinning woman in white that dances through the fields and spins through the fields. These are the stories that are told about the Tilly Willie's Bridge. Interestingly enough, not a crybaby bridge, but a creepy bridge, a spooky bridge nonetheless, right? Okay, so we go up there to explore. All the research that we could do would not net us any information whatsoever about the origin of the bridge, when it was built, we kept finding, we found where the county road commissioners, like, we don't know when it was built. We have no idea. The records don't go back that far. We have no idea what it actually is, when it was built. No clue. So we were like, holy crap, this is crazy. Well, we get there on our initial day, and we go in to do what we would call, um, well, we went out to scout. We went out on our scout during the day to go see, because this one was important to scout. You know, we didn't want to fall off the bridge at night. There's a lot of water there and fast moving water and like undercurrents and stuff that could happen when the water's high enough. You kill, get you killed real quick, right? So we go out there and we're scouting and we're, you know, filming our scout trip. We would film certain parts. We'd film lead ups. We would uh, talk about what the stories are, why we're here, what we're doing before we'd actually do the episode on the show, right? You know, do the actual filming for the investigation rather. So we're standing there, we've walked all over the bridge, we've taken our pictures and our promo pictures and our pictures for the website and all the things we've done, and we're talking about it on camera. We've walked off to the pullout where we can actually have the bridge behind us for a backdrop and where we can safely park for people to drive across the bridge. Because it is a narrow bridge, y'all. It doesn't even look like a bridge, right? Well, it's because it wasn't a bridge. But it's super narrow, and you just, the, the road was an old dirt road, Millie, you had to get out of the way had to get the hell out of the way so we had this uh pull off back on this side of the bridge and we're standing there and i'm talking to the camera and we're telling the story and saying and we were actually talking about how you know what there's no way i mean how does no one know when this was built and as i'm looking back towards the bridge i realized i could see a square in the side of the bridge that looked a whole lot like a maker's mark like a stamp in concrete of a maker's mark and i said yo Do you think that's where the maker's mark is? So we go over and hang off the side of the bridge and look, and sure enough, 1928, E.M. Ratliff, engineer. So the county road commissioner had no damn clue when it was built, but on the fringe was there to solve the mystery. 
day one. It was beyond me with all the discussion that was on the online forums and stuff. And in 09, granted, they weren't, you know, extremely extensive forums, but they was there nonetheless. That no one had ever, like, that had been out there ever noticed the literally a stamp in the side of a concrete bridge from a distance that looked like somewhere a maker's mark would be. But sure enough, we found the maker's mark. E.M. Ratliff, engineer, 1928, solved that mystery. Also solved the mystery through doing that because a historian contacted us after we released all that information saying that we solved the mystery of the bridge, that it was actually a dam built as a series of five dams in the 1920s and 30s to distribute water to the city of Fayetteville. As of 2009, no one knew that that bridge was a part of that. They, it was literally had ubiquitous origins. No one had any idea. Not ubiquitous. Jesus, I'm just throwing words out of my brain now. It's just been a long recording night, guys. Bear with me. Anyway, so we go to record that night. We go to film. We go to do our ghost hunting, right? So to speak. Go do our ghost hunting. Well, part of ghost hunting today still, and it was back then when we were getting pushed into doing this, was using voice recorders and asking questions and trying to get what they call EVPs, electronic voice phenomena, whatever. So we're out there and we're looking for whoever's there. Okay. We got all these stories. We got all these little snippets that maybe this happened, maybe this, but the only thing we really had is possibly the college student, a male that drove off the bridge by accident because it didn't have rails. It had no sightings back in the day. Like it was just little bumps. You could easily just curb your tire and go and you're in the Creek or in the river rather. And, uh, that supposedly happened in the seventies. And that was about the only story we had at the time, but we're looking for this girl in white. And we even talked about in the episode, well, how does this girl in white relate to the dude that drove off the bridge? Who is she? What does she have to do with anything? Well, we're out there recording. Okay. We never did catch a girl spinning in the pastures and like white or whatever around the bridge. But I'm going to tell you something. We did catch something. I was on that bridge with our camera operator. I had the tape recorder in my hand and we're out there asking the questions. I feel so stupid telling you guys this Um, because I know a lot of y'all do think this stuff's woo-woo. But hey, again, we were chasing a dream and this is what we were asked to do. And this is one of those events that happens to a person in their life that literally makes them question everything they didn't know and everything they did know or thought they knew. And again, I'm putting it on the line, baby. You're getting the real story tonight. I'm holding this tape recorder out and I'm asking questions. And I asked the question, what was your name? And about seven seconds passes, you know, while I'm giving their time and space and I'm thinking of the next question. And about seven seconds passes and all of a sudden there's a white flash of light I'm looking out towards the river. The tape recorder is out at arm's length to my right. So it's in my peripheral vision. I'm not looking directly at it. A white flash of light goes right by the tape recorder, right by my hand, like in an instant. It was like getting buzzed by a bird or something. The problem is there were no lights out there to even say, though that was a reflection of a bug that shot by your hand. No, there was a bright ball of light or a flash of light rather that went right by my hand. And it scared me because it startled me. And I jumped and you hear me on the tape go, oh, Frank, let's say Frank. This is a family friendly show. I was like, oh, Frank. 
Okay. So, scared the hell out of me. I jumped back. Jordan's kid, or Jordan, was it Keith on the bridge with me? I think it was Keith. Anyway, they steadied me because I jumped back and we're on this little tiny bridge that's just falling straight off in the water with no guardrails. Like I almost stepped off into the river. Okay. So we get our self collected. And I continue to ask more questions because at the time, all I knew is I just saw an inexplicable flash of light right by my freaking face, right? So I continue to ask questions after I've composed myself. And later on, I say something to the effect of, if you'll speak right into this little red light here, we can document you. And then it goes on and I ask more questions, whatever. So we wrap up the investigation for the night. We thought we did have something crazy happen, something tall, jump into the water. And interestingly enough, there's some kind of story about a goblin or some sh- whatever. I think it was probably like a beaver, but I could see him in the moonlight and it was standing on its back legs and it was only a couple of feet tall. But I'm guessing it was like a beaver that was standing up to look at us because he was curious. And then he like just bailed off in the water and it's this big, loud slash. I could see him, though. But I'm going to assume it was a beaver. I have to assume it was a beaver because it shouldn't have been anything other than a beaver. But as for the tape and the recordings, we plugged it in to the car stereo just to give a preliminary listen through as we were just driving back to our hotel for the night. You know, we'd wrapped up the show. Now we have to do we're not wrapped up the show, wrapped up the shoot for on location. Well, then we got to go through all the evidence and we got to wrap up the show with an evidence reveal or analysis or whatever, right? Well, we thought, well, while we're driving back to the hotel back in town, let's just go ahead and play it through the speakers and let's just see if we hear anything just outright. We get to the point where I say, what was your name? And you hear, okay, there's the seven second pause and we're all in the, the, in the suburban, right? There's the seven second pause and right before you hear me yell out, oh, Frank, which would mean the exact moment that that white light flashed right by my head, right by that tape recorder, plain as day, you hear a female voice in a whisper say, Sarah. There was mass pandemonium in that suburban we are probably fortunate that people didn't die in that suburban that night. It was chaos. We had to pull over to the side of the road. Everyone was freaking out and we backed it up and we listened again. What was your name? Sarah. That truly and sincerely happened y'all. And the way we were able to pinpoint it to the moment of that flash of light is because you hear that female whisper say, Sarah, a split second before you hear me on the tape go, oh, Frank, and freak out. Okay, it gets better. So we get back to town. And we do the full analysis of all the tapes and all the footage and all the things and all the equipment that we had taken out there, right? And Joe, Joe, Irish Joe White, our sound guy, found another voice or another place with the voice in it. 
And what you hear is me saying, if you can speak into this thing in my hand, into this light in my hand, we can document you. And right in the middle of the second and third symbol syllable of document, right between Q and mint, document, you hear the same voice in the same whisper at the same pitch with the same timber go, thank you. I'm not kidding y'all. I'm my hand, my arm, hair on my arm standing up right now. Can you see that? You guys watching on YouTube, just retelling it every time. And I've listened, I've shown a few people cause you can still buy the DVDs y'all on the fringe, Tilly Willie's bridge. Go find it on Amazon right now. Again, young Justin, 13 years ago, no beard and hair actually had hair. Anyway, it really happened. Something talked to me, something talked to me and it changed my worldview and the way and what I was willing to question, y'all, really happened. Tilly Willie's Bridge, unfortunately, is closed today. They tore it down, even though we discovering it, or who made it, actually helped a historian almost save it to the historic register, almost. He fell short. The bridge was demolished and a new one built just upstream. However, I did some research today and have found that people are still going and looking for the pe- the 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 girl spinning in the pastures at Tilly Willie's bridge on the new bridge that was built just upstream. And it would appear according to all of them that whatever it is they're seeing or hearing has found its way to the new bridge. So if you'd like, you can come and road trip, legend trip, ghost trip your way to check out Tilly Willie's bridge. All the information you need to find it will be right there on the old interwebs. Fayetteville is an awesome, awesome little college town. Y'all. There are some great places to eat. There are some great, if you're into going to the bars and the clubs, there's some amazing ones down Um, close to the campus, the view of a y'all Fayetteville, Northwest Arkansas is an awesome place. Take you a legend trip, go down, maybe take a shot. See if you can go out there and find Sarah and talk to her. I mean, hell, now that I'm talking about it now, I'm half tempted to want to go back and talk to her myself. See if I could get more info. And if there is a chilling conclusion to this tale that really, really freaked me out, not no more than two hours ago, as or three probably now, but as I was researching this data at the time that we got the EVP that said, my name is Sarah, or said Sarah was its name. We had no information that we could find on the internet in 2009 that had any indication of anyone but a young male college student dying going off of that bridge in his car in the 70s. Okay. When I was researching earlier and I am unable to verify it at this moment, I looked and looked, but I'm sure that if it did happen, it could be verified. If anyone wants to go search archives, I would had I more time, but I saw a story that did not, was not there that I had access to in the Oh nine that would have changed the game on how we felt about that EVP. But apparently sometime long time ago, there may have been a young mother go off of that bridge with her children and perish in the waters of the white river. And if that's true, that might explain why the guy we were looking for had a girl's voice and was named Sarah. And it also might explain the twirling white lady in the fields, which we didn't see. And I don't, I highly doubt anyone will ever see to be completely honest, but that sent chills down my spine earlier when I saw there's actually a female associated with drowning in that river where that bridge was 
because that was information we did not have 13 years ago when we had someone named Sarah say thank you for remembering her, I guess. Anyway, that is going to wrap it up for tonight. This is a long episode and I hope you guys enjoyed it. It is the spooky season and I hope you have a spooky weekend and you enjoy your Halloween celebrations. Until next time, you guys know where to find all the stuffs. So I'm not even going to go over it tonight. We will catch you guys in a couple of weeks. Have a good night. Have a creepy weekend. And until next time, you guys be good to each other.